0: Welcome to Pathways, I'm Randy Brutkowitz and today we're talking with Dr. Sarah Blosser. Since receiving her Ph.D. degree in Immunology and Infectious Disease from Montana State University, Sarah is now the Director of Clinical Microbiology at the Indiana State Department of Health. Let's learn how her Biological Sciences Education and Clinical Microbiology Fellowship center on a path to leadership of a Department of Health laboratory at the state level. Sarah, welcome to Pathways.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Question right off the bat. So tell us, you are the director of a clinical microbiology laboratory. What exactly does that title mean? And tell us what a typical day for you looks like.
1: There is no typical day, I can tell you that, but you probably hear that fairly often. So as a director of clinical micro, I have the role and responsibility of of the technical oversight of all of the laboratory testing that has a clinical implication at the State Department of Health. So for us, that's bacteriology, mycology, and mycobacteriology. A typical day, if there was one, involves meetings, and uh, meetings with uh, the director-level individuals for our epidemiologists, um, maybe clinical consultations, and review of lots of technical documents. So clinical microbiology is an extraordinarily regimented field um, at the clinical level, and there is a lot of paperwork that has to be done, and I get to do all that.
0: Sounds like fun. Most <laughs> days it is. I'll bet it is. So you had several opportunities to be exposed to research mm-hmm. throughout your time, uh, certainly as an undergraduate and, and just after. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, those experiences?
1: Mm-hmm. So when I was an undergraduate, I really started to be interested in, re- in research. And I worked with uh, Dr. Mike Perlin at the University of Louisville. And he just had a fantastic way of uh, explaining science in his classes. And that was really what kind of got me interested in research to begin with. And so I'm sure I didn't make any progress during that um, experience in his laboratory, but it, it helped pique my interest in science. Um, and we were looking at uh, the fungus E. in that particular laboratory. I then did three internships after undergraduate, before I went to graduate school, to kind of hone what I was interested in. Um, one of them was at Walt Disney. Um, I worked for the Animal Kingdom, doing essentially pregnancy tests for the different animals there, and two internships at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory and during that experience I really began to see the role of epidemiology in um, in science and understanding population wide dynamics. Then I went to Montana and uh, of course with most graduate programs you do your rotations and I settled in the laboratory of Robert Kramer and um, we look at the pathogen Aspergillus fumigatus and I did my five years of PhD work there um, looking at sterile biosynthesis and the transcriptional role uh, of that pathway. When I went to my clinical fellowship at NIH, there was also a role for research, though, as well. And that's when I really started to see the really translational aspects of research, where you could take a product or a project and really see some direct impact in patient lives. So let's
0: let's step back to when you were a graduate student. Mm-hmm. So you so you did research as an undergraduate. You had lots uh, several different fellowships, including Walt Disney uh, areas, but when you were in graduate school, so you're like, I'm going to get a PhD. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe first question: What what drove you to get a, to want to get a PhD? And when you were a graduate student, what were your plans mm-hmm. upon graduation? Where did you want to go career-wise?
1: So during those internships I did between undergraduate and graduate, one of the things I really kind of started to hone in is that I wanted to be able to have an impact in patient lives. And so for me, one of those aspects was uh, you know a biomedically relevant fellowship, but I was also interested in pathogens. And so for me, the, the biggest thing was I needed to work with bugs. Um, and then when I did my rotations, my, I was not planning originally to go with my, with my graduate advisor. I thought I would for sure end up in a different laboratory. But he had a really canny ability to just say, I know a project that will really draw her in and he, he sent a simple experiment to me. He said, I want you to see what happens when we add this drug to this organism. How does it respond? And how does it develop resistance? And these were aspects that I found very um, exciting, thinking about the microbial arms race and how these pathogens evolve to not only cause disease but to circumvent our drugs that we use. Um, so that was kind of the, the goal and the, and the thought into going into the PhD project as I just wanted to have more of an impact on that pathway. And understanding. Um, I guess my ultimate goal when I first started graduate school was I thought I would be a professor and end up teaching and, and expounding this, this knowledge to other students and maybe doing some research as well, but it, that of course changed as, as the project progressed and as I learned more about the, the science in the field.
0: So as you learn more about the science in the field and mm-hmm. the applications to patients, that got you more interested in the clinical mm-hmm. aspect. Well, certainly after your, your PhD, you went and did a clinical microbiology fellowship at the NIH. Yeah. How did you learn about that opportunity?
1: <laughs> um, I really think that I've I just been very fortunate to be in circumstances where you meet people who really open your eyes to different options. So it was my third year in graduate school, and I was at that point starting to say, well, academia is really going to be maybe not the best fit for me. And I was starting to ask, what, what is the best fit for me? And my boss sent me to uh, an intensive course at Woods Hole. Um, It was a medical microbiology course, um, and sorry, a medical mycology course. And in that course, it was both didactic and lab, and one of my lab partners happened to be in a clinical fellowship program. Um, He was in California at the time. He was also studying another yeast pathogen as part of his research project. And so although I learned an awful lot about medical mycology during that class, I got even more information from him about this fellowship program, what he did and what he was looking forward to doing in the field as a clinical microbiologist. So that it was uh, you know, not intentional, but I, I saw him last week at ASM and I had to thank him. I said I would be talking about him today because of the impact he had on my life.
0: Kind of happenstance, I think that really happens for, for folks and yeah. think things you least expect. What do they call that? And,
1: Serendipity? <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right, that's yeah. right. Some people call that fate as well. Mm-hmm. I think. So let's think about way back when you were younger, try, what I mm-hmm. like to ask the guests on Pathways, when were you first bitten by the science bug?
1: Oh my goodness. Probably from a pretty young age. I think of two primary anecdotes. One when I was in the seventh grade and I learned about the different types of, of muscle. So skeletal muscle and cardiac muscle and things like that. And drawing the differences in those cells. And I remember I got an A and my teacher went and showed me, uh, took that and took it to one of her teacher's conferences as a good example. Um, and it wasn't that I had the goal of making it you know, to be an A project. It was just fascinated by the different structure of those cells. But really, I think the bug really bit me when I was a senior and undergraduate. And I was taking a couple classes on comparative evolution and how, again, this microbial arms race happens. And I was, uh, at the time, pondering going to medical school. And I would go home uh, for dinner on the weekends and I would talk to my parents about what I was learning. And one day my dad finally looked at me and said, you know, all you talk about this class is this class that you're taking on microbes. And the science and how they evolve, and he goes, and you don't really talk about any of your, you know, medical school type classes. He's like, when are you going to do what you really enjoy? And then I think it was really when I started to say, well, yeah, I can do what I really enjoy. I can really do what what's fueling me, what's pa- making me passionate. Um, and so it's kind of been a nonstop truck since then.
0: Speaking of your your parents, anybody in your family a scientist? No. You're you're the first.
1: I am the first. <laughs> Um, my sis- my sister is also now a scientist, and in, in uh, a non-traditional sense, she's a speech pathologist. But no, I'm the first in my family, so.
0: The so first doctoral member of the family. I actually am. So certainly d- down the path, and I think we all have stories like that where we have uh, we're like the, the trailblazers in some respect. <laughs> you just went, you went with your passion. I think mm-hmm. that's that's you know, kudos to your father, obviously, for encouraging that. But, We all, as we go down the road, we have mentors who have helped us along the way. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the mentors who have really helped you. You mentioned your PhD advisor, but Mm -hmm. folks who really helped you along the way to help carve your path for you or at least keep you on track so you didn't fall off.
1: Mm -hmm. I think a lot of of the decisions I've made have been non-traditional in a lot of different senses. So I've just been very thankful to have Different advisors who, although they would have preferred had I gone the way they went, because don't we always want our trainees to go the way that we go? They said, well, that's not for you, so you should go and do what your passion is. And so that's happened each step of the way, actually, for me. Um, an undergraduate and graduate and even in my clinical fellowship I did not go into an academic medical center I went to a public health laboratory which is again just off the beaten path um, so now I'm very fortunate to have two mentors which are very strong in the public health industry and are very encouraging and helping me out there um, along the way though making these non-traditional kind of decisions I have to say my husband's been my biggest advocate um, he's just said you could do whatever you wanted and I'll back you up so
0: that helps yeah, certainly you don't it just yeah. you can just pursue what what you really want to pursue mm-hmm. and that, and that's great so mentors are really really certainly in important but i but was was there a defining moment in your mind i mean you mentioned was was the defining moment that really steered you in the direction where you are today that that woods hole experience
1: I would say that it was. Yeah. Um, I, it was like a, a light at the end of the tunnel where there was a lot of confusion for me. I was th- I was trying to think of t- many different pathways that I could take. Again, I, I knew that I wasn't necessarily fit for an academic uh, traditional career where it was, you know, mostly research and maybe some teaching. Um, and so I knew I wanted to do something different um, to fuel my days. And so that was kind of that moment where you went, all right, this is it. I'm going to move forward with that. Tell us
0: a little bit about the structure of the laboratory mm-hmm. that you're in. You're in the Indiana Department of, of Health and, and in, the, in the laboratory that, that you lead. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. What's the structure folks who you work with?
1: Yeah. Um, so the Indiana State Department of Health Laboratories has five testing arms. Um, it has clinical microbiology, which I'm here today. It has virology, preparedness, chemistry, environmental microbiology. I think that was all five. Please forgive me if I forgot one. Um, and there's a, we have a laboratory director that oversees all five of those testing areas and a deputy director. Um, our state laboratory director also happens to be an assistant commissioner for the state. Um, so she also has external facing roles. Um, so there are five of us in my position and I, I see oversee clinical. And I have four direct reports. There are 16 people in my division, and we do a lot of different testing things every day. So all of the state TB cases, um, we do a lot of antibiotic resistance, um, and then anything that's new, novel, or emerging.
0: Yeah, you don't want the very last thing you you mentioned, emerging, (laughs) where you talk about Zika, Mm -hmm. and and certainly we don't want, uh, well, Ebola has at least a vaccine that seems to be uh, effective as a a VSV. uh, vector.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. What about rabies? Do you test for rabies?
1: We do, that's actually in our preparedness division. We are the only rabies laboratory in Indiana. We only do animal cases though.
0: Uh, For so for a human if they just had suspected rabies then they would go to a hospital, is it?
1: They would go to a hospital, yes. We don't actually um, have any specimen collection that occurs at the State Department of Health. Um, usually this is done at your normal laboratory, and then it's sent to us, and we process it from there. In the case of a human rabies case, that same process would occur. A sample would be taken at your hospital laboratory, sent to us, and we would actually send it and coordinate with the Centers for Disease Control.
0: Okay, so that goes that goes down to the CDC. hmm mm-hmm. still publish papers?
1: Yes, but not as often as as you would in academia.
0: What, what are the, the topics of the papers that you publish?
1: Um, we have one right now where I'm working, I'm working on, and that is uh, looking at carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriaceae, antibiotic-resistant organisms, um, and the way that we've chosen in Indiana to try to screen for this and then to confirm it. So it's more of an algorithm-based publication to kind of look at that. But what's been fascinating about that is there is a, a new antibiotic resistance laboratory network that the CDC has promoted and promulgated and each state and six major cities um, in the nation are part of this lab network. And so every state is trying to tackle the question right now, how do we do that? How do we screen and how do we confirm? And so um, it's very timely. I feel like Indiana's been ahead of the curve um, in our ability to have brought this testing on several years ago. And so that's helping us to advise some of our other, other sister states as to how to conduct the testing. So we're working on that. We also, um, I'm sure you heard we had an HIV outbreak a few years ago. Um, So we've been collaborating with the CDC on several publications um, related to that. So it's mostly when when things go wrong and you said that's the thing that you don't want, but that's the the reason that public health is there. Um, We work behind the scenes for the most part until something goes wrong and then we're very visible. Um, And it's from those where we try to publish our experiences so that the next time something happens, we can have a little bit of a better, faster, and more effective response.
0: You had mentioned that you received specimens and you test Mm -hmm. specimens and things. And certainly when I talked about things that you want to avoid, those are from an individual standpoint, Mm -hmm. right? But do you have like an action team that goes out if there's something that pops up?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, That's uh, a separate division. So it's not going to be my lab staff that goes out there, but that's our preparedness division for the most part. But there are other arms within public health that would be deployed um, in those circumstances. And they go out and they do a fantastic job of, of trying to coordinate with local leadership to, um, to respond to those sort of incidents. And if testing's needed, they know how to get in contact with us.
0: Now certainly you had mentioned earlier that your goal when you're in graduate school
1: mm-hmm.
0: was to maybe be a professor, you teach about things that you've been working on, do a little research, and mm-hmm. just have those things put together. But you went down this path. Did you have another alternative plan as, for career as a, a Ph.D. holder that mm-hmm. you could do, your plan B?
1: Yeah, I was thinking, um, I've always been very interested in teaching and in really just being able to explain science more actively to, to a wide variety of audiences. So I think that my backup plan, although it wasn't as defined maybe as a Plan B, would have involved teaching. So kind of around the same time I I went to Woods Hole, I was also contemplating perhaps going into an undergraduate research, or I'm sorry, undergraduate teaching institution, or even uh, as a staff at a science museum, um, in order to be able to just really be able to get out there and educate people on science. I find it fascinating. So why wouldn't you want to share it?
0: Sure. You brought up something I think was very interesting in terms of science outreach.
1: hmm
0: Where there actually is a science outreach. One of my
1: favorite <laughs> topics.
0: Right, right. And, and what, kind, what kind of things have you been able to do
1: mm-hmm.
0: to, in terms of science outreach to, to lay folks?
1: To lay folks. That's the hardest uh, avenue, I think, to approach. So most of the outreach that I do is, is to other laboratorians. Um, So I work a lot with other clinical labs throughout the state and explaining to them why we want to do what we're doing. Um, But at the same time, we do actually get out there and explain to somewhat lay folks. I work with um, nurses and infection preventionists in the hospitals on a routine basis, um, pharmacists and and things like that um, to explain that. Um, More and more, we're actually getting involved with um, things like uh, school Uh, science fairs and also um, there's a couple of really cool science days that we can have uh, middle school students come to here in Indianapolis and elsewhere but really for me my major emphasis has been on trying to um, make these very complicated topics in science and in clinical microbiology um, digestible by other other scientists. Um, so if it's not your area, it's not your field, It's all these acronyms can be a bit overwhelming. So this next year we're gonna be launching a lot into long-term care facilities. So nursing homes and things like that where they're scientists, they're, they're nurses they're, or um, pharmacists and they're trained in their field, but you still throw a bunch of acronyms at them and it becomes a little bit daunting.
0: Right, I mean, I also had time at the NIH and there are acronyms all over the place. Mm-hmm. So that was... We
1: like them in government, I think. Yeah,
0: I think that's a great, that, that's a great point. <laughs> but in terms, so maybe for, for, for um, convalescent homes for mm-hmm. the elderly, I mean, there are a number of infectious diseases you have to worry about, maybe MRSA is one, mm-hmm. where that's a, a potential issue. And, and when you mention scientists, they're nurses or they're pharmacists, and even lay folks can be scientists too, if you have an interest
1: Absolutely. that makes you a
0: scientist, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, if, I guess for, for me, one of the things that I think is really important for guests on, on Pathways who, for the folks who are listening in, if they're interested in seeking the type of career path that you take in, in a mm-hmm. clinical laboratory or lead a cl- clinical laboratory even participate as, as a staff member in a clinical laboratory, what kind of advice would you give them?
1: I would say to have them approach someone in the field as soon as possible um, just so that they can see if that really is what they want to do. Um, Maybe it's something as simple as shadowing them for a day or maybe it's something um, I take fellows or interns um, for a period of time to work on a a public health related project. Um, Any of those opportunities would give you that exposure to say is this really what what I can sink my teeth into for the next number of years. Public health. I think that my colleagues are are fantastic in that they are all very passionate about what they do, and so that's what we're looking for when I'm saying that. Saying that for a public health microbiologist, um, there's also opportunities that they could do like a clinical fellowship, like I did. Um, it's through it's through ASM. It's called the CPEP program, um, and that's a two-year fellowship in order to get that exposure that you would be interested in.
0: So. Yeah, when I was younger, since so my, my undergraduate degrees in microbiology and public mm-hmm. health, we were all convinced to take the, the AAM mm-hmm. registered microbiologist exams mm-hmm. to be certi- certified microbiologist.
1: I like to say certify your worth. <laughs>
0: That's right. <laughs> and and does it, so that that academy still has a had specialist microbiologist mm-hmm. as well. Do you have certifications that you need in your role?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so I am uh, a newly uh, introduced diplomat for the American Board for Medical Microbiology. Um, and so that's that's the level. It's the ABMM is what they call it. Um, there are uh, two main avenues you can go to to be a clinical microbiology director. There's only usually at an institute like mine you need to have one person certainly who has that certification according to um, CLIA. Um, and, Uh, So there's two avenues there. You can do ABMM or you can do what's the ABB like what you were talking about? Um, But really at our level at my institute we have three of us And so I think we're really able to provide really good feedback to one another. Um, We have similar training We have similar experiences. We had to sit through this grueling exam and study endless hours for it so um, a little bit more of a knowledge base and when there's a, a clinical incident that comes up, a case consultation, it's really nice to be able to bounce ideas off of each other. So even if you're not serving as the CLIA director, I think it's, it's really wonderful to be able to work with those colleagues that have you know, made it that far in their field.
0: Right. So just since you mentioned CLIA, maybe you mm-hmm. could tell our folks what, what CLIA stands for.
1: I don't actually know what it stands for. I can tell you what it means, though. Tell us what um, it means. <laughs> It is the set of standards that all clinical laboratories have to follow, and it is essentially, it tells you, um, for each test that is performed in a clinical laboratory, you have a certain um, requirement for uh, saying that you can actually perform the test that you say you can perform. So we do what's called proficiency testing, is one of the major components of CLIA, and that's where somebody sends you a sample, they know the, it's kind of like a test, they know the answer, you get the sample, you test it, you report back, And they say you either passed or failed. And if you fail, that is a big deal. Um, So that could mean that your laboratory will be shut down. They also specify um, the quality control that's required for each step of the testing in the laboratory, the level of documentation that's required. Like I said, clinical laboratory uh, is very regimented. And it also specifies the educational requirements of each layer of, of individual in the laboratory, from the technologist, technician, supervisors, directors, et cetera. So it's a really comprehensive document um, and it, it essentially tells us what how to conduct our business every day.
0: Yeah, there are CLIA labs, obviously, here in the in the School of Medicine, Absolutely. hospitals, et cetera.
1: And I know several of the people that work there. Yep. We c- collaborate quite frequently, excuse me.
0: That's great. Uh, I have one last question for you and that is, did I not ask you something that you think I should have asked you?
1: <laughs> um, I don't. I don't think so. I think one of the things that we touched on briefly though that I would just really like to highlight is the involvement that anyone can have from any walk of science, whether you're a research microbiologist, whether you are involved in teaching, is to really get out there and to speak your science. Um, I think we so oftentimes don't promote what amazing things we do on a daily basis. We talked a little bit about advocacy and about um, just the ability to get out there and explain what we do and that, I think to me that's one of the most fulfilling parts of my career no matter which way I, I've taken it is if I'm passionate about what I'm doing I'm passionate about the next step I want to be talking about it and encouraging other people and really being able to explain what we do to the general public um, so that would be the only thing you didn't ask me that but that would be what I would hope to to, to leave you with.
0: No, I think that's, that's great well thank you for joining us
1: Today. Thank you for having
0: me. So I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Sarah Blasser, for sharing her story of the steps she took from earning a PhD in Immunology and Infectious Disease to running the Clinical Microbiology Laboratory at the Indiana State Department of Health. I also thank all of you for joining us on this podcast. Remember, you can find us on the Indiana University School of Medicine's website, SoundCloud, and on iTunes under IUSM Pathways. Also, in addition to the audio, from our broadcast. For some of our interviews, we've captured the video as well. Join us next time on Pathways, as we explore the career path of another professional who holds a PhD in the sciences, which landed them in their current and very exciting non-academic position. I'm Randy Brettkowitz. The theme music for Pathways, Supernova, was composed by Aaron Brettkowitz. Pathways is a production of the Indiana University School of Medicine.